And we want to look at uh, Matthew 5, uh, 33 through 37, the use of oaths this morning is the subject matter. Second Corinthians? <laughs> Matthew chapter 5, <laughs> verses three, uh, 33 through 37. Lord, we uh, ask now that you would uh, minister to our hearts as we study the word of God together. I thank you that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate teacher, and yet you use human teachers such as myself in the process as well. So, uh, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Uh, may we indeed have ears to hear what you have to say to each one of us in terms of this matter of, of being truth tellers, uh, which is certainly a, a part of, of our calling as believers. And so, Lord, we commit the study to you, ask your blessing upon it, pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, um, well, as we uh, consider the theme, uh, Christ the King, we see this throughout the whole book, but we're in this section here in chapters 5 through 7. The pronouncements of the king, proving his judicial right to the throne, as seen in uh, the wisdom of his kingdom teaching. So uh, note that. And uh, as we get into this, as far as the background, I have a little uh, extra background here this morning. But uh, true believers are not physically in the kingdom. We're not there yet. But we are kingdom people. Uh, positionally, we are in the kingdom in the sense that we are kingdom people destined to one day physically go in to the kingdom. And therefore, we are called to live accordingly. We are called to live according to kingdom ethics as kingdom people. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to assume that we will live this way. Not perfectly. We're not glorified yet. But we are in process and note the emphasis on changed lives that we see all throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, uh, 9 through 11 is indicative of this, where Paul says, Do you not know, assuming they should know this, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Unchanged lives are indicative of unbelievers. Uh, those who continue to live unrighteously, will not inherit the kingdom. He says, do not be deceived. There are people that say, well, hey, yeah, it doesn't matter how you live. You're a believer. Well, if you're a true believer, the expectation is that you are now a new creation. You have a new nature. You have new desires. And you're not going to live like you did before. Not perfectly, but certainly directionally. He says, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. They are not going into the kingdom. And then he says, and such were some of you. You're not this way now. There's been a change that has happened in your lives. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Inherent in this statement is, as believers, we have had our lives changed. Now, those of us truly headed for the kingdom uh, have been changed from the inside out. By the grace of God, uh, we have been changed and we are being changed. I mean, there's a fundamental change. We're new creations in Christ with a new nature. And yet that's working its way out in a process called practical sanctification in our lives. But we have been saved and changed by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Matthew 5.20, Christ said that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom. That's kind of the governing principle throughout this whole sermon 
on the mount. Now, what he meant is that we must know a righteousness in our lives that works its way out from the inside out. As Paul said, we've been washed, we've been spiritually cleansed, uh, we have been positionally set apart, that is sanctified, which then demonstrates itself in the life. This is the fruit of true repentance called for by both John the Baptist and Jesus. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees had an outward form of righteousness. It was all about external standards, jumping through these external hoops. But Christ emphasized an internal change of heart called repentance that then works its way out in the life. The scribes and the Pharisees knew what the law said, and they tried to go by the letter of the law, all the while insisting... Uh, or really all the while missing the deeper intention of the law, which relates to the motives of the heart. The doing of the law was to be governed by a heart that desires to obey. And as we study further in the New Testament, we find this is made possible by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Christ showed that kingdom living lives out this deeper dimension of the law, which is what he came to bring about, or as he said, which he came to fulfill. Now, again, none of us do this perfectly. And we're not under the law as a legal code. But we are under the Holy Spirit. We are under the law of Christ, which is really the law of love. And if we really live according to what Christ commanded us, the new commandment, which is to love, we will be living out the deeper intention of the law, uh, what we call the moral law. Well, in chapter 5, there are six areas that the scribes and Pharisees had a legalistic external code of righteousness for, and yet missed the deeper intent of the law. And in each case, Christ brings about correction, which presents an even higher standard of kingdom ethics. So note these uh, six areas that Christ addresses. You've got the issue of murder, which is a deeper issue of uh, anger is kind of the root, uh, adultery, divorce, Oaths, and that's what we're going to consider today. Vengeance. And then, uh, number six, love for our enemies. Now, speaking generally, uh, we have noted that at the heart of murder is anger. At the heart of adultery is lusting. And at the heart of divorce is unfaithfulness. Really, first and foremost to God, but then to the, the, uh, the marriage covenant. Well, in each case, the religious Jews considered only the outward externals. But Jesus goes deeper, showing there's a heart problem in each case. Well, today we will consider the issue of oaths and vows. And it is fitting that this emphasis uh, on marriage and divorce that we saw last week is immediately followed by this emphasis on vows. You see, in human relations, other than our relationship with God, Himself, there's nothing more sacred than marriage vows. And uh, let me just say a few clarifying remarks in terms of feedback I got from my sermon last week. I do get feedback once in a while. But uh, before I move on to this issue of oaths, uh, let me make a few uh, postscript remarks in relationship to the issue of marriage. And uh, just by way of review, uh, marriage of two believers is what the Lord addressed. And in this uh, gospel, uh, Jesus made it very clear 
No divorce and remarriage for two believers. The only exception is sexual unfaithfulness. And apart from the one exception, if they do divorce, Paul says they can either remain single or be reconciled. So that's uh, the marriage of two believers. And then as far as a mixed marriage, an unbeliever and a believer, Paul addresses this. And he says, uh, okay, you find yourself in that context, stay married if possible. Uh, If the unbeliever is agreeable. But if the unbeliever leaves, then the believer is no longer bound in that case. And then uh, finally, by way of review, save people previously married but now single. And again, Paul addresses this. Uh, He talks to the unmarried and uh, uses that same word as divorce just a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 7. He's addressing the unmarried, which I take it to be the divorced, and the widows. And uh, here, uh, note this. You go from where you're at. You're a new creation in Christ. You can't go back. You can only go forward. And Paul says, uh, if you can, it is good to remain single. Kind of like he is. But not everyone has this gift, as he says. And then he says, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Well, last week, I underscored that before God, marriage is a covenant relationship and not merely a contractual agreement. So the question is raised, what if a couple is just married by the state? I mean, they don't bring in the covenant emphasis, right? It's a contractual thing as far as the state mentality. So uh, is that a covenant relationship? That's a good question. Is that a real marriage in the eyes of God? Well, as ordained by God involving one man and one woman, the answer is yes. You see, God has ordained human government. Now, we don't recognize the perversions of human government uh, that are in contradiction to Scripture, like the authorization of a, a gay marriage. We, as Christians, would not recognize that, which will get me in all kinds of trouble. You know, thankfully, this is not being aired. I'm just kidding. It is. But... Uh, <laughs> But insofar as it aligns with Scripture, we do recognize the state's regulating authority. Uh, For us as believers, the Bible is our ultimate authority. And uh, we ought to obey God rather than men. That's really what I'm saying. But when it comes to the state, the governing authorities recognize both legal marriage and legal divorce. If you want to be recognized by society as married, you go to the state. You get a license. If you want to, after that, uh, separate and be divorced, you have to do that through the state. You can't say, well, we just, we just did it quietly. No, you can't do that. You have to do that in conjunction with the state. So when the state recognizes someone as legally married, then the whole of society recognizes a marriage commitment has taken place. We recognize the function of human government. And in order to get to divorce, there also has to be a legal procedure. Thus, both marriage and divorce are handled in conjunction with the governing authorities as ordained by God. Paul, in addressing the largely Gentile church at Corinth, recognized all those legally married, in keeping with Roman law, were legally married in the eyes of God. And with the biblical principles he brings to bear, it applies to all of those married couples. Upon conversion, he did not require some special additional ceremony conducted by the church. 
When we become Christians, we recognize the significance of marriage, the marriage bond, in a way we did not necessarily do so before. In fact, before we're Christians, probably you recognize much at all as far as the Bible as governing authority. But now as Christians, we see it differently. Nonetheless, uh, no matter how we saw it before, uh, the reality of marriage before God stands. As Christians, we are now called to live accordingly. And finally, death breaks the marriage bond. In uh, Romans chapter 7, Paul writes, The woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. And again, Christ says in Matthew twenty-two thirty, In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. So we note this. Uh, we say this in the marriage vows. Till death do you part. Uh, death does break that bond that you've had. And yet Don Stewart says, Husband-wife relationships are not destroyed. They will take on a new meaning. Uh, We will no longer live in the same married state as we do here upon the earth. However, we should not assume this means deprivation. We will retain memory of our loved ones and enjoy fellowship with them. Indeed, we will. I think it will be richer than anything we've known in this life. But it will be different. But as long as uh, we're both living, uh, a married couple... Uh, The marriage vows are binding. This is why in the marriage ceremony we always say, till death do you part. Well, that brings us to the issue of oaths and vows, which are very serious before God. And we pick it up, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord. Once again, this is basically a summary of what the Mosaic Law said in different places. For example, example one reference would be Leviticus 19.12, which says, And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So indeed, the law said, uh, you shall not swear falsely. Uh, To swear falsely is the idea of making a false vow or vowing something that then you don't carry through on. Uh, Today, the offense of willfully telling an untruth under oath in a court of law is called what? If you do that, what is the crime? It's called perjury, right? Perjury. Now, in context, here's the deal. The Jews were afraid to use the name of God. In any oath that they were making, because they understood it to be totally binding. They knew the law. Uh, You shall not swear falsely by my name. You you better not be lying if you take a vow in the name of God. Therefore, these uh, Jews, who as a people are very brilliant, but uh, when it gets to the matter of God, you better be careful. Get too smart for your own good, and that's what they did. Uh, they came up with forms of oath-making that really were not so binding, at least in their minds. These kinds of oaths supposedly had loopholes. How about that? Let's come up with loopholes. It takes a lawyer to do this. (laughs) Uh, They were all lawyers, you understand, the Jews. I'm just kidding. 
But uh, they came up with loopholes. We, we have oaths with loopholes. That's really what Christ is addressing here. He's taking them back to the deeper intent of the law. There's, there's no loophole, is what he's saying. In the greater context of Scripture, I don't think Jesus goes on to forbid all oaths, period. But does get to the heart of the matter in dealing with oath abuse. That's what Christ is dealing with here. This is the real issue. Uh, it's kind of like this. You know, we, we know what this means, right? You see this here? Yeah, I, I swear to tell the whole truth. I got my fingers crossed. I didn't really mean it. That's really what these Jews were doing. We're not going to bring God into it because that would be really binding. I'm not going to swear in God's name, but I'm going to swear by something else. Say, say heaven, for example. <laughs> well, Jesus is here dealing with crossed fingers swearing. He is showing that any legitimate vow is binding before God. There are no loopholes. Any vow that is indeed a vow is binding, period. And so he goes on to say, verse 34, But I say to you, do not swear at all. Now I want you to recognize right there, if you stop right there, there this is not a period, right? He does not say, but I, I say to you, do not swear at all. He, there's not a period there. This is in the middle of a thought that is qualified. You might put it this way. Do not swear at all in this way. As he goes on to explain. Don't swear this way at all. I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. So the first thing we should note is that when Jesus says, do not swear at all, it is qualified by the common practice of the Jews at this time. Don't swear in this way. That is swearing by heaven, swearing by earth, swearing by Jerusalem, or swearing by your head. Swearing by everything but God. Don't do that. You see, biblical oaths were to be made in the name of God. And there was a place for them. The one oath that was not made by the Jews, as as emphasized here, was they were not making oaths in the name of God. Which is the one way you are to make an oath. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. This is how you do it. And that was the point. They were not doing that. The Jews were trying to get around swearing in God's name, realizing that to swear falsely in God's name called for divine punishment. And nobody wants to bring that on themselves. So they thought they figured a way around it by swearing by these other things. By the way, playing word games with God is just a bad idea. You're just not going to outsmart God. You're not going to outword him. Uh, I don't care how lawyerese you think you might be. And that's what they're kind of doing is playing word games here. God looks at the heart. As we consider the whole counsel of God, as I say, it does not appear that Christ was prohibiting All of swearing, that is, oath-taking, and that's what I mean by swearing here. We're not talking about profanity. We're talking about taking oaths or vows in the name of the Lord. Uh, Note the following. God himself swears oaths when he wants to make a point, a binding point, an emphasis. 
Uh, Jesus spoke under oath. He didn't say, well, I'm for, nope, sorry, not going to do that. No, he did. Uh, Paul made oaths a number of times in the New Testament scriptures, and we will consider one of them just a little bit. This would indicate that there are some qualifiers in place here, and that Jesus is really addressing the abuse of oaths as commonly practiced by the Jews. I think that's the context here. The sense is that there is a place for oaths, but they are always to be made in God's name, and there are no loopholes. The sense is that in common everyday speech, we should not need to use, use oaths because we should be people of our word, just as a way of life. We shouldn't need to strengthen it with an oath and say, well, you know, I swear this time I'm telling the truth. Normally, I'm just a chronological liar, but uh, a chronic liar. But this time, this time I'm swearing. No, no, you shouldn't have to do that. That's what the Jews were doing all the time. Oaths should be reserved for special occasions, such as in a court of law. Uh, and in that context, people don't even know you. Uh, or in the case of a wedding commitment, uh, which is a, a special and unique occasion. But there's no place for playing word games with oaths. And that is the point. There's no place for uh, the making of this kind of oath. Uh, for the kind of oaths ordained and practiced by the scribes and Pharisees. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the standard of the scribes and Pharisees, Christ said, you'll not inherit the kingdom. There's a, there's a deeper standard. They had this external standard. They were playing all these games, in this case, uh, case loophole games with oaths. No, no. Now, there's a fascinating passage to consider in light of what Jesus is saying, where he says, uh, as we go on in our study here, uh, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Uh, Paul, in defending his motives as he's writing to the Corinthian church, combines this emphasis of, he says, yes, it's yes. And when he says no, it's no. And in the same breath, he uses the language of an oath, which is kind of uh, interesting, is it not? Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and of course, uh, Paul had his critics at Corinth who were saying, you know, he hasn't shown up yet because he's just not a man who can be trusted. You know, he says he's coming, but he never comes. Uh, well, Paul had his reasons why he hadn't shown up yet. And, he, and so he's having to defend his, even his very apostleship with the Corinthians. And he says there, verse 17, Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things that I plan, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? Am I playing these word games? Uh, but as God is faithful... Even the hint there of a kind of an oath statement. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. We weren't playing yes and no games. And then he says, a few verses later, in verse 23, Moreover, I call God as a witness against my soul. There is the language of an oath. That to spare you, I came no, to, no more to Corinth. There was a reason he hadn't come yet. He had a reason for it. Wasn't playing games. Wasn't playing word games with them. And he uses an oath to underscore it. Well, did Paul violate the teaching of Jesus by invoking an oath to confirm the solemnity and truthfulness of his statement? Uh, Bob Deffenbaugh gives a good answer, and he says this. I don't believe Jesus' point in Matthew 5 is that oaths are evil or that an oath can never be legitimate. 
I believe his point is that the swearing of oaths as practiced by the scribes and Pharisees was evil in its entirety because they deliberately swore their oaths by everything except God in a foolish effort to sidestep their accountability to God. The heart of the matter in our passage has nothing to do with the formality of an oath or a vow. The heart of the matter is the heart. I do believe that is true, what he says there. This was the problem. It was not oaths in and of themselves. Uh, It was the very nature of the oaths they were practicing that Jesus is addressing. Their whole system really had to go. It was unethical in its entirety. Their entire practice was essentially wrong. They tried to remove oaths from the reality of God and accountability to him. And that's impossible to do. You, You can't soften it. An oath is an oath. Uh, and if you try to get around it, you're just fooling yourself. That's what he's showing here. Notice uh, they're swearing by heaven. They're swearing by earth. Uh, God alone can call creation to be a witness to what he is saying. Because, you see, he alone controls nature. Uh, what does it even mean to swear by heaven, by the way? I'm not going to swear by God, which I understand that, you know, I'm accountable to God. He's going to hold me accountable for what I'm binding myself to. But what does it mean to swear by heaven? That's kind of a nebulous idea, right? What do you mean by that? That's a good question. What do you mean by swearing by heaven? Well, remove God from the equation. And what is heaven really even all about? Uh, Without God, heaven is no longer heaven as we know it to be. The point is this type of oath was meaningless if God is removed from the equation. And yet more to the point is that swearing by heaven in doing this, God is not really removed at all because it is the place of God's throne after all. The heaven being sworn by is occupied by God. In truth, what Jesus is showing is that there's no loophole. No loophole to swearing. You can't bypass God. This is the main issue in this context here that he is making. They were trying to strengthen their statements with an oath and yet stop short of invoking God. And Jesus is showing no matter what, God cannot be bypassed. All these word games, God's still involved here. People are accountable to God for any vow. There's no way around it. In Matthew 23, we have some of the strongest language in the New Testament coming from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, where seven times he announces a woe on the scribes and Pharisees. Repeatedly, he says there, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This is the reason he brings the woe upon them seven times. Hypocrites. He's nailing them to the wall, these religious leaders, hypocrites. I think it's especially offensive to God. Well, in context, what is Jesus talking about? One of the key things he's talking about is this very subject that we are talking about this morning. Matthew 23, woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Oh, see, I just swore by the temple. Uh, I didn't swear by the gold. The gold will get you. Don't bring the gold into it. <laughs> what games? He says, fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold 
or the temple that sanctifies the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar, swears by it and by all the things on it. He who swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. A hypocrite is an actor, a pretender. A game player. Someone who pretends to be something they're not. You see, these religious leaders pretended to add credibility to their statements by way of these lesser oaths. And yet their statements came from lying hearts, hypocritical hearts, playing games with God, playing games with oaths. And that was the problem. They were hypocritical liars. And this is what Jesus forbids. You want to make a a, a vow, you better be deadly serious about it. Don't play word games with God. Don't play oath games. Don't act all spiritual and make some kind of a vow with no intention on carrying through with it. Or claiming some kind of immunity because of some special lawyer's wording. That's playing word games with God. And it doesn't work. He sees right through it. Just remember, people often try to play games with God, and they try to play word games. But God looks on the heart, and he sees right through it. Verse 35, Nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Don't swear by earth, because it's God's footstool. Again, God is still in the equation. God is sovereign over the earth, not us. Now, in a sense, it would seem here that when one tries to take an oath and leave God out of the equation, what are they doing? Well, in a real sense, I think they're trying to play God. They're now kind of making up the rules. But God doesn't appreciate these hypocritical games. Um, Notice in Isaiah, it says... Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and and who trembles at my word. Point is this. God alone is sovereign over heaven and earth. And to swear by them thus involves God. There's no way around it. To swear by Jerusalem is to swear by the city of the great king, as seen in Psalm 48 too. And yet again, God is tied in. In this matter of swearing, making an oath, it's, it's really hard to escape the God factor. Yea, it's impossible. And so he says, verse 36, nor shall you swear by your, your head. Again, what's that mean? I'm swearing by my head. <laughs> it's crazy. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair uh, white or black. Swearing by your own head is profoundly ridiculous, sinfully ridiculous, because you can't even change uh, the color of one hair. You say, yes, I can. I've got hair coloring. (laughs) Uh, Don't play these games. Yeah, with the help of beauty aids, you can do something about the external for a little bit, right? I could even wear a wig if I wanted to. Yeah, right. I could do that. 
and say, hey, look at my head of hair. You'd say, yeah, you phony. <laughs> it's not true. Uh, yeah, your natural color remains. You really didn't change it. The issue here involves authority and control. D.A. Carson writes, Jesus insists that whatever a man swears by is related to God in some way. That's his point. And therefore, every oath is implicitly in God's name. Heaven, earth, Jerusalem, even the hairs of the head are all under God's sway and ownership. Indeed, that's his point. We're not in control ultimately. Uh, To make vows that try to evade God or to act like we're in control... We're not. The, the hairs of our head are ultimately under his sovereign control, not ours. Well, the implication here is that the Jews in their braggadocio oaths, trying to look so spiritual, look, boy, I'm, making, I'm swearing to this, swearing to that. Uh, they left God out. Uh, claiming some kind of authority in effect over the realm they were swearing by, such as heaven, earth, Jerusalem, or their own head, That was really exceedingly sinful. It was deceptive. They had no such authority, and swearing by any of these things actually did involve God, since he is the maker and sustainer of them. Great summary statement by William Barclay. He says, here is a great eternal truth. This is, that's that's something worth listening to. Here is a great eternal truth. Life cannot be divided into compartments in some of which God is involved and in others which he is not involved. There cannot be one kind of language in church and another kind of language in the shipyard or the factory or the office. Ah, that's true. There cannot be one kind of conduct in the church and another kind of conduct in the business world. The fact is that God does not need to be invited into certain departments of life and kept out of others. He is everywhere. All through life and in every activity of life. He hears not only words which are spoken in his name. He hears all words. And there cannot be any such thing as a form of words which evades bringing God into the transaction. Indeed, we will regard all promises as sacred if we remember that all promises are made in the presence of God. Well, that's true. Amen. You can't compartmentalize. And so Jesus says, conclusion of the matter, verse 37, But let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Again, in context, Jesus is addressing sinful oaths of the kind being described. God's kingdom people are not to do this. Our lifestyle is to be that of being people of our word, who don't need to play hypocritical Oath games to try and come off like, well, I really mean it this time. I swear it's true. Yeah, that means most of the time you're, you can be looked on as a, as a pathological liar. You, you shouldn't have to say, well, I swear it's true this time. No. Uh, Jesus is saying we're to be people of our word. We're to be truthful and honest. We're to be people whose bond is our word. J. Vernon McGee says, When a man says to me, I swear on a stack of Bibles a mile high, that is the fellow I do not believe. Because I think he uh, is telling a lie that is a mile high. Yeah, probably. Why do we need Bibles a mile high? You see, in our ordinary conversation, day in and day out, with people we know, we should not need to swear at all. 
You see, we should be so honest that people know when we say no, it means no. Maybe we should start with young children. How about that? You know, they know we don't really mean no because we got to say it 15 times, right? I mean, my no means no. And my yes means yes. But you know, kids, your no doesn't really mean no. Oh, we're on to a whole nother subject here. But uh, we need to be people of our word. When we say no, it means no. And yes means yes. It doesn't need to be strengthened with the vow. I really mean it this time. No. Now, of course, as already pointed out, I believe as you consider the whole counsel of God, there are occasions when a vow is very appropriate. But in such a case, we better make sure we're honest and not hypocritical. We had better realize this is binding before God, and we are certainly accountable to God for it. David Gazik gives a good summary statement here. Some have taken this word of Jesus as more than an emphasis on truth-telling and honesty and as an absolute prohibition of all oaths. This is misguided, and I agree with him, because oaths are permitted under certain circumstances as long as they are not abused and used as a cover for deception. That's the context that Jesus is addressing. The disciples of Christ are not or are to be identified by our truth speaking as a way of life. Not just when we take an oath. Our God is a God of truth and as his children that is to be reflected in how we carry on in our day by day living. Now the devil is a perpetual liar. He is a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning. And uh, he's a murderer and he's a liar. And so are, are his children. You know, there's an interesting statement back here in uh, Numbers 23, 19, which is, God is not a man that he should lie. What's that tell you? People normally are liars, right? God's not like that. God is not a man that he should lie. The sense is the people are natural born liars in contrast to God. You know one thing you don't have to teach kids to do? You don't have to teach them to lie. You say, well, my children never lie. Don't lie about what your children do. <laughs> we lie very normally. Very naturally. It's most natural, one of the most natural things in the world to lie. We learn it early. Now, as born-again kingdom citizens, this is not to define us. Not that we never mess up. We do. But we are to be truth-tellers. As a way of life, not just on special occasions. Notice uh, Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. We're we're to be a truth-telling community. Truth-telling family. We're honest with each other. James makes it pretty strong. The end of the book of James 5.12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. James is addressing believers here. What does he mean by lest you fall into judgment? Um, You understand James, right? We taught through James recently, in fact, in the last year or so here. James, too, was addressing what kind of an audience? Jewish. He's addressing the 12 tribes. You understand the background here, right? Uh, We interpret the scripture in context, but also historically. We understand the historical context. And uh, the Jewish culture was, we're swearing by everything all the time to strengthen what we're saying. 
James is saying to these Jews he's addressing with this Jewish culture as far as their background, don't do this. In other words, James is saying that as a way of life, you should be people of your word. You don't need to strengthen what you're saying with vows. Which would be like saying, I lie all the time unless I strengthen it with a vow. Then, then you can be sure I'm not. Unless, of course, I've got my fingers crossed. Then you can never be sure of anything. Better make sure you've got both hands out here. Anyway, James says, be truth tellers as a way of life. Be people of integrity. Don't swear at all in your everyday conversation. And here we believe James builds on what Jesus taught in Matthew 5. This is where James got this. James warns not to swear in an improper manner, lest you fall into judgment. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, James could mean judgment in the sense of incurring discipline from God in the here and now. Or he could have in view giving account before the judgment seat of Christ. You know, it's just not real clear what he means. Either way, this warning is to be taken very seriously. To swear irreverently or improperly is to invite the judgment of God in terms of one form or another. The making of an oath or a vow is never to be done flippantly. The Bible is very serious about this. There we are. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 4 and 5. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Vows are serious before God, because we bring God into it. The Jews recognize this. Therefore, let's figure out a way to make a vow, but not bring God into it. Jesus says, you can't do that. And Jesus is saying, I think, and then James that in the normal course of life, you should not have to vow at all. As a way of life, your yes should mean yes, and your no should mean no. John Phillips says, We have all been put on guard by people who feel they have to preface their remarks with oaths. They are always saying, I swear, or this is the honest truth. We instinctively begin to wonder if they are lying. Yeah, somebody has to do that all the time. Where are you coming from? We live at a time, an interesting time in history. I'm convinced we're right at the end of the church age. I have no idea as far as how long the church age is going to go, and I'm not setting any dates, but boy, uh, I'm convinced we're there at the end. Uh, We live at a time where people play terrible, deceptive word games. Uh, I have a book that I'm reading. It's a fairly large book. Goodness gracious. It's about, uh, you know, 450 pages long. You know, nighttime reading, perhaps. But it's called Seduced. Seduced. And uh, it's by D.K. Matthews. And and on the cover uh, uh, is the title under Seduced. And it says, Shameless spin, weaponized words, polarization, tribalism, and impending disintegration of faith and culture. That's that's what the subject he's dealing with. And uh, here's a few quotes. The verbally... Seductive redefinition of our entire vocabulary is redefining the future. That, my friends, is insightful. You may be clueless as to what's going on out here in the world, but there's a redefinition of history. Uh, There's a redefinition of words. And that's really what he's dealing with here. And he goes on to say, 
We can't agree on correct definitions of treason, impeachment, freedom of speech, establishment of religion, the American experiment, democracy, socialism, social justice, compassion, racism, morality, Christian, God, Jesus, salvation, heaven, or hell. We don't agree on anything as far as definitions. Who's got the dictionary? Postmoderns threw the dictionary away. You kind of decide personally what truth is to you. We don't believe in absolute truth in our generation anymore. And that affects the very language we use. We like to say words have meaning. They would like to say, no, it all kind of depends on what I mean. One more quote here. Ultimately, for meaning to have meaning, for words to serve as words and not weapons, and for individuals and civilizations to flourish, language and communication desperately need realignment with what's a normative plumb line. Oh boy, there you go. That is so true. Bottom line, we as a society are in trouble because we as a postmodern culture have become adept at being word twisters who no longer even believe in absolute truth. That's bad when a society gets to that. That's one of the major underpinnings of the whole entire culture. In this kind of a world, God calls his people, that's you and me, kingdom citizens, to be truth tellers. We're not to be like the Jews of old who deceptively played word games with oaths. Pretending to be people of integrity. When in fact they were liars at heart. We are not to be like the postmodern generation of our day. Who claim to have their own truth. According to their own feelings. According to their own dictionary. For true believers. Our God is a God of truth. And we are all about the revealed truth of God. A half-truth is a whole lie. You know, we uh, often say, uh, mean what you say and say what you mean. Don't play word games. That's what Jesus was emphasizing with these Jews. This is the standard of kingdom ethics, of righteousness that God demands of his people. Uh, a, a new creation from the inside out is reflected in how we uh, use our words. Now, God's standard is himself and his word. His standard is absolute truthfulness. And God never shades the truth, not even a little bit. Psalm 51, 6, in David's confession, he says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. I like to say, what David is saying is, he says, you need to be, we need to be honest with God, honest before God. You desire truth in the inward parts. And here in the book of Proverbs, these six things, six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Well, what's God hate? Well, a proud look, immediately followed by a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Note, uh, there's a kind of a double emphasis in here. One of the last warnings in the Bible comes from Revelation 21.8, where it says that all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. The devil is the father of lies, and lying defines his children. It's everywhere. Our whole, our whole world is built on this. In contrast, we are kingdom children of the Lord and are to be characterized 
by truthfulness. Truth defines kingdom ethics and kingdom living. I like this from Andre Sue Peterson. Pick up on a little bit of, uh, you know, sarcastic irony in her writing here. But she says, Once upon a time, people were ignorant and gullible and had a faith in God and church. That was called the Middle Ages. And good riddance to them. Then came the Enlightenment, so-called because people believed in reason now, and traded faith in God for faith in man's ability to seek and find true knowledge. But now we know better that there is no truth, that is, absolute truth, that there are only truths, plural, and that your truth is yours and, and my truth is mine, so let's just coexist. Claiming philosophically that we can know nothing at all, they turn around and claim to know that class power struggle is the driving engine of history. Claiming that language has no correspondence to the empirical world, they inconsistently make didactic statements about right and wrong and social justice. Truth is subjective. But my view is right and yours is wrong. Values are impossible. But fight racism and sexism. America is evil. But it's unjust to keep anyone out. Technology is ruinous. But it's not fair that poor people in the world don't have it. Tolerance is good. But Christianity is intolerable. And she concludes, time to dust off the Bible and review in 1 Corinthians what God has said about the wisdom of this world. Ah, indeed, the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. But the truth of our God shall endure forever. A researcher studied how often people lie during daily conversations. Some time ago they did this. His research revealed that 60% of adults were not able to get through a 10-minute conversation without lying at least once. Most people lied three times. You know what the Bible says? The heart is naturally good and tells the truth most. Of, no, no, it doesn't say that. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There's the question on the table. It's so wicked, who can know it? And the answer comes back in the next verse, Jeremiah 17, 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. The whole world is about lying and deceit, and it goes to the very nature of our fallenness. We are surrounded by lies. Liars, tramps, and thieves. They're among us. But for the grace of God, there go I. No holier than thou. It defines the whole world and the natural man. But it is not to define God's children. In repentance, we align with God's truth. In kingdom living, we are to be truth tellers as a way of life. One of the greatest compliments I think we have in the scripture was given by Jesus to a man named Nathaniel. In John 1.47, it says, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Wow. Now that's a compliment. This guy was the genuine article. A person defined by the truth. Want to be a good testimony? Just be a person of your word. 
be a, a consistent truth teller. That's our calling as kingdom citizens. We are called to be a people of integrity, people of our word, people who are honest and truthful, people of character. The worst testimony in the world is that of a hypocrite. That's where these religious leaders were. That's why Jesus called them to such serious account. Ironically, the world is full of hypocrites hypocrites and hypocrisy. And yet, it's interesting that they despise hypocrisy when seen in others, right? World-renowned Christian apologist Rabbi Zacharias recently died of cancer at the age of 74. It's interesting, in 2018, Rabbi said that uh, if he was remembered as, quote, a friend of Christ, that is all that he would want. But after he died, things started coming out. Actually, it was there before. It was just pretty well hidden. It came out that he had terribly sexually abused various women over many years. And he elaborately sought to cover it up with hush money, etc., etc. Ravi in his lifetime was thought to be a champion for God's truth. A person who majored on truth-telling. He wanted to be remembered as a friend of Christ. But instead, he is now remembered as an arch-hypocrite who in the end caused the truth to be greatly blasphemed. It's a valid question as to whether he was ever even saved. Which is really scary because you can intellectually know the faith backwards and forwards as Rave did and yet have something radically wrong. You see, truth endures. It catches up with us. And in the end, it will tell all. In a court of law, it has been common to ask a witness, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And it's appropriate in that context, in that case, to swear. It's appropriate to make vows on special occasions, such as a wedding and so forth. But what Jesus is saying is the truth is to define us as a whole way of life, not just when we swear an oath. And in our normal day-by-day casual conversation, we should not need to take an oath or a vow to affirm we're telling the truth because we should be people of our word as a way of life. This is Christ's point. Truth and truth-telling is to define kingdom citizens. Let your yes be yes and your no-no for whatever is more than these, Jesus says, is from the evil one. Be a truth teller as a way of life. It's a matter of the heart. Let's stand and have our closing song.